Greetings, friends. This is Dr. Mark Sharona, and I want to welcome you to The Edge Podcast, where all things theological, psychological, spiritual, and cultural will be explored so that you and I might understand the times and know what to do about them. Enjoy. This podcast is about identity formation. It's a follow-up on the last podcast I did, and I want to take us a little bit further in this journey, which is tied to the crisis of our times, which is, in many ways, a crisis of meaning rooted in an identity crisis. There are all sorts of struggles that people are facing And there are all sorts of questions about meaning and purpose that continue to plague the current culture. And it was Charles Taylor, the Christian philosopher, who said, our struggle for meaning and purpose is an indication of the potential opened for us in Christ. Think about that. That our struggle for meaning and purpose is an indication of the potential opened for us in Christ. One of my degrees, graduate degrees, is in psychology. I was 43 credits away from a PhD, and then I parlayed that for a doctorate in applied semiotics and future leadership studies in relationship to theology. Semiotics is the study of signs, both visual and linguistic, both in the scripture and in the culture, so that we can understand trends and recognize those things that are trending toward truth and those that are trending away from truth. Well, when we think about the signs of our times, we need to be aware of the crisis of our times, which is tied to a struggle for meaning and purpose at a number of levels in the culture. And if you just do some thinking, you'll discover that because our identity politics reveals how we have reduced each other to labels. And we've redefined ourselves based on certain labels and limited what our humanity is really all about. And so having studied psychology, I was appreciative of what I learned and what I developed. And I also was aware of the stark contrast between a secular view of human potential and a biblical or more specifically a Christological view of human potential. In other words, We have been made in the image and likeness of God, and that's not fully revealed to us until in the New Covenant we get to see who God is in the form of Jesus, his Son, and that Christ is the very image and likeness of the Father, and we are being made and shaped into the image and likeness of Christ so that our identity is rooted in Christ himself, and the more we can identify with him, and the more we behold him, the more we become like him. So we're ever in the process of becoming. We're both being and becoming at the same time. It's part of the human journey. And what we need to realize is that if anyone has the right to talk to us about human potential, and this is with all due respect to the brilliance of an Abraham Maslow, the brilliance of a Carl Rogers, the brilliance of a Rollo May, 
with all due respect to their views on personhood and potential and what Maslow would call self-actualization and peak performance. The greatest voice for human potential is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who came in the form of human flesh, descended from his glory to become fully human, not just that we might become partakers of the divine nature, but that we might see what true humanness has the potential to both be and become. I don't know when the last time was that you walked on water, but I've never done that. And yet here's Jesus, the God-man, who can metaphorically rule the nations as he walks on the waters because the sea always represents in Scripture the Gentiles that... He, by the promise he was made to Abraham, would be a blessing to every family on the earth. So the great uprisings in the prophetic literature, the seas and the sea monsters, are all tied to empires that come and go, tied to Gentile nations and the conquest of Christ over every tribe, every race, every kindred, every tongue. And his conquest is a conquest of love. It's not a conquest of bitterness. It's not a conquest of hatred. It's not a conquest of of indignation. It's a conquest of love. And so he desires to bring out of us everything that Adam forfeited and failed to understand because Adam revolted and rebelled against the opportunity given him by the Creator and was banished and exiled from the optimal environment of Eden. And in him, all of us have partaken of that exile, that death, that alienation, that separation from God, from self, from others, and from purpose. And so when we talk about identity crisis, I'm going to suggest that you can go to all the seminars you want to from a secular perspective in psychology. And you'll glean a great deal about how human beings think, about how they form their interpretations of reality, and yet you will not be able to fully tap the potential of the human being from a secular perspective because you have to go back and have an encounter with the Creator who made you for His purpose and for His glory. And in beholding Him, we are changed into that image from glory to glory. So that when we talk about being and becoming, there is a portion of who we are right now as followers of Jesus that doesn't compare to who we will be not only in the ultimate consummation of the kingdom, but who we will be a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, provided we continue to surrender and yield to the spirit who wants to form us and shape us continually into becoming fully human and fully integrated and fully actualized in Christ. So with that in mind, I want you to think for a moment. I'm going to tell you a story. And then I want to talk a little bit about Abram and Sarai, just a little bit. But I want to tell you a story first. I grew up in New York City. I'm a native New Yorker. And as a kid, 
uh, growing up in Staten Island, the smallest of the five boroughs of New York, we were about, oh, an hour's drive from a place in New Jersey called the Flemington Cut Glass Company. There in Flemington, there were some buildings that had been around for a long, long time that housed pottery makers and glass blowers and artisans who worked with glass and pottery. Stangle Pottery was there. Turntable Junction, where a century before steam engines and trains would be pulled into that junction and these the turntable would move those massive engines to be realigned with other tracks and with other trains. And growing up as a kid, while I didn't, and I can remember the first time I went to Flemington Glass with my mom and my grandmother and my aunt and my cousins, I, the last thing I wanted to do was go look at vases and glasses and all that stuff. But my mom promised me that there would be a surprise at the end if I went. So as a young kid, I was waiting for the surprise. Well, what I didn't realize when I got there was not the surprise, which I'll tell you about in the end, but I walked into a building where there were men and women that were glass blowers. Now, I didn't know what a glass blower was, but I watched as they sat on a stool and were working at long distance with some tools with glass that was being heated up in an intense fire from a, a like a methane uh, uh, pipe like I would see later on when I was in lab in the science lab in middle school and high school but they would sit on a stool and the glass they were working on would be probably six or seven feet a distance from them and it would be connected to a long thin glass tube that looked like a straw and the glass that they were molding that was in the fire that was being held up by another sort of a handle uh, was, was in the fire and it was being rotated by their hand on this long cylindrical tube. And I said, what is that all about? I had never seen glass being shaped and formed. And while they would turn that long looking cylinder, that little glass tube that was six or seven feet long, as I recall, I would just marvel at how this blob of molten glass would begin to take shape as they would heat it up until it got white hot and, and, and flamed. And, and then they would take a, 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 some sort of a piece of wood or another instrument and while they would spin it with one hand, they would press on it with the other and give this blob of molten glass shape until it would look like the outside of a bottle or the outside of a cup or the outside of a vase. And then at a given point, the glass blower, and then I realized what a glass blower was, was they would blow into that long cylindrical tube. They would send breath down that tube into that molten fluid glass that was being shaped. And as they would blow that air into that hot flaming molten glass, 
the cool air hitting the hot glass would cause that piece of glass that was being molded to get larger from the inside out and to expand. I was mesmerized watching an artisan, a craftsperson, using their breath to breathe into this long tube at the end of which was this molten piece of glass that they were shaping into a vase or into a bottle or into a, any sort of a, a, a container and then watch it expand from the inside out and take major shape. And I would just enjoy watching the process and then when they would complete it, they would disconnect it from the tube, cool it off, and then they would begin to do engravings on it. And then eventually we would see the finished product and it was a masterpiece. And they could replicate the same masterpiece again and again, but more often than not, every single piece had something unique about it. Well, years later, when I began to preach the gospel, the Lord brought back that image to me of the glass blower and began to make me aware that it's the fires of faith, the trying of our faith that shapes us and forms us and makes us moldable and pliable to become more like Jesus and to be shaped into his image and likeness. And the Father is the divine glassblower, and Christ is the ultimate image, or the, the and in this case, the glass that, uh, that can contain the fullness of the Father's Spirit. And at a given point when we are in the fire, while God is shaping us and molding us, he breathes afresh the spirit, the breath, the wind of his very, very presence, the spirit himself who comes from within us and from the inside begins to expand us in the fire, enlarging our capacity and our potential to contain more than we did before we went in the fire. And while the fire itself may be hot, while the fire itself may be uncomfortable, and while we may feel like we're melting and we're losing our sense of structure and order when we're going through a fiery ordeal, when the fresh, cool breeze of the Holy Spirit inspires us, is breathed into us by the Father through the Son from the inside out, and he brings us to another place of shaping and expressing who Christ is in us uniquely, where we contain more of his potential than we did before. We end up learning that the peaceable fruit of righteousness is worth the process of chastening because we're being trained to reign and rule. And so our identity is being formed and reformed continually by this ongoing process of the challenges, the adversities we go through that invite us by faith to be enlarged. You know, David says in Psalm 4, 
Thou, O Lord, hast enlarged me in my distress. The King James says, relieved me in my distress. However, that's not the best translation of that Hebrew word. The Hebrew word far more than that means enlarged in his distress. And the word distress is a word describing a very narrow, tight place. So... What God does when we're going through stress and distress is that the fire of that stress and that distress makes us vulnerable, pliable, and we melt in surrender. And then he enlarges us in the tight place so that we're bigger on the inside than we've been before, so that we outgrow the narrow, tight place on the outside and break the boundaries of what the stressful thing tried to do to cramp us in. But the enlargement by faith comes from within, not from without. So with that in mind, I want you to think for a moment about the promise God makes to a barren couple in the scripture in Genesis 12 that were in an environment where everyone else could produce and reproduce and generate life for 20 generations. And all of a sudden, for the first time in the scriptural record, we have in Genesis 11, verse 30, Sarai had no children. It's the first negation in the generational records in scripture. Everything before Sarai was productive and reproductive, generative and ongoing. And yet here we go. We have the first no and negation where it isn't happening. And there's no way for them to realize Abram and Sarai, their potential in that culture, in that climate, in that setting, in that country, amongst their family, amongst their relatives, or even in their father's house. They can't realize their potential. So it's as if God has been working in history from the exile of Adam from the garden, from the the fall of the heavenly um, angels, the Nephilim that fell in Genesis 6, and then from the entire culture at Babel that was sent to the ends of the earth because they were resisting the purpose of God and wanted to prevent another flood and rebel against God's purpose to fill the earth with his glory. So there are three cataclysmic falls prior to this moment in time when Abram and Sarai are experiencing a profound negative, a testing in life where they cannot produce what everybody else can produce. Now you talk about an identity crisis. What's it like to be the only couple in this long genealogy that can't do what everybody else can do? Well, if you can't do what everybody else can do in the culture, who are you then? You don't fit, you don't belong. And see, our problem is in the current culture is that a lot of our identity is driven by how we perform, by what we do. And we treat each other in that way. We, we know each other by our performance instead of by our essence. And we become human doings when we're called to be human beings who are also becoming, by the grace of God, more than we've ever been before. And so here's Abram and Sarai, and they don't fit. 
and there's a crisis. And in the crisis, the Lord appears to Abram. And he says to him, go from your country, your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will make of you. Not a whole lot different than Jesus saying to Simon Peter and to James and to John and to Andrew. Andrew, follow me and I will make you. This is the same God offering the same invitation to forsake everything, follow him so that he can make us into something beyond where we are. When Abram and Sarai encountered the living God, they didn't fit because they couldn't produce. When Simon Peter encounters Christ on the seashore of Galilee, he's fished all night and caught nothing. What he has been best at now hits a wall of failure and he can't produce. And it's at that crisis moment that Christ himself reveals himself in that vulnerable moment of liminal space, liminal space, the in-between place between where I was and where I'm going, where God meets me and invites me to stretch and be enlarged by his gracious dealings in my life and by the breath of his spirit. And so when God says to Abram and Sarai, go from your country, the King James says, go forth. The uh, New American Standard says, go, go forth. The Hebrew words are lech lecha. And lech lecha actually means, listen carefully, go for yourself. And when rabbinic scholars deal with go for yourself, leave your place, this is an actual invitation, not simply to a physical place called the land of promise, but an internal place that is more than physical space and place that is actually a new mode of being. And the journey to enlargement is going to take 25 years for Sarai and Abram, for Abram and Sarai. And in that 25-year period, they're going to get put in the fire a whole lot of times. And they're not always going to make the best choices. And yet in their imperfections, the breath of God is going to come every time they make decisions that are not quite in line with what he desires. He's nevertheless, by his grace, going to bless them and going to enlarge them until they get to a point where they cannot possibly find any way into the future without God's assistance. I've often said the best definition of grace is I can't, God has to. And we come to those moments again and again. I know we believe we're converted once. The Bible doesn't seem to indicate that conversion is a one-time thing. The scriptures, if we read them faithfully, seem to indicate that conversion is an ongoing process where we go through progressive stages of transformation from glory to glory, from faith to faith. And 
like Abram and Sarai, there are many stopping places, places of testing, places where we're put in the fiery ordeal of adversity and have to trust in the decisions that we make that God is bigger than that and that he's honoring our faith to trust him and that at the given point in time when he wants to enlarge our capacity to contain more of who he is and more of the blessing he wants to give through us, that that breath, that wind, the Ruach of God will enlarge us first from the inside so that the land we occupy on the outside is celebrated and maintained, that God wants to ground us internally so that the ground of promise we stand on isn't shaken from under our feet. And so part of the identity process of formation, identity formation and spiritual formation is found in the many places. There's a lot in the Genesis account about Abram and Sarai going from certain places to other places. And when Abraham goes to a certain place, he will always build an altar where the Lord appears to him. Every place becomes a sacred moment of place where altars are built, where God has made himself known because it's a progressive enlargement that comes from God revealing himself a little more each time at the place that Abram arrives at. And all of us go from place to place. Matter of fact, when Ruth journeys with Naomi, she says, as Orpah leaves and goes back to her people, Ruth says, forbid, you know, ask me not to leave you. Um, Where you go, I go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. And that word lodge there in the Septuagint in the Greek is the identical word for places that Paul uses in Ephesians when he says we're seated in heavenly places. And the lodging places or the places we're seated are temporary resting stops along the way to our ultimate destination. So being seated in heavenly places is not being seated permanently in one place. It's a progressive unfolding of a journey because Jesus is the journey. He's the way, which is the word for journey, the truth and the life. And we're continually being called into a future that we have not arrived at yet. And we go from place to place. And one of the Hebrew words, one of the definitions of that Hebrew word for place or makom implies a state. In other words, an internal existential state. The places Abram went in the promised land where he built altars also represent enlarged states of being where he became more than he was prior to going through the test, even when he wasn't perfect in his obedience until when they get to the place where they're as good as dead. God then transforms them to the be to be able to conceive and how does he do that he changes their name abram becomes abraham sarai becomes sarah now in the english there's an h put in to both abram and sarah's name abram becomes abraham h-a-m Sarai becomes Sarah 
ha, the H. The H is almost silent. But what you want to know about that H in the Hebrew, it's that it's the breath of God. So that what God is doing is by his spirit, God is bonding himself to Abram so that he takes on a greater portion of the divine nature. And now he is called Abraham because he now partakes of that aspect of the divine nature which is going to enable him to realize his potential as the father of a multitude. He's no longer going to be Abram, exalted father. He's going to now be Abraham, Abraham, the father of a multitude. He doesn't just have to produce in a way that brings effort. He will now bring forth a seed so great that the sands on the seashore won't compare to how many descendants he has. So he's going from place to place until his identity is fully formed, whereas Abraham, he now can bring forth the potential, which is Isaac, that could not have come unless he went on the journey. And at that point where he becomes Abram, Abraham, it is the wind and breath of God that blows in and on and through him and Sarai, and they become more than they ever were before. And so as you think about the journey towards identity in a day when the crisis of our times is an identity crisis, trust the grand story of scripture. Trust that the narrative about Abram and Sarai and the journey from barrenness to birth is being retold in your narrative journey, which is why the way you tell yourself the story about yourself is so important because it reveals where your faith is. Is it in your ability or is it in the God who is able to release your potential beyond what you could ever do on your own? Because the, the full potential that is yours in Christ will never come by secular techniques. It will only come by the inbreathing of the spirit and the cool breath and breeze of the spirit in your life when you have been through adversity and fire and have been made moldable and pliable so that God can make you into someone who can contain far more by his spirit than you could by self-effort. Until next time. I invite you to go forth. That word, go for yourself, the, Hebrew, the rabbinic scholars say, go towards that new identity. Did they realize, the rabbinic scholars, that they were talking about the new identity in Christ? Probably not. But the scriptures tell us that ultimately going for yourself is going towards that place where you become who God has made you to be in Christ and where he enlarges you and shapes you into the image and likeness of Jesus from faith to faith, from glory to glory. You are in the process of both being and becoming at the same time. And as you identify with the story and with the Christ who is the author and finisher of the story, the more your identity 
will be shaped into his image and likeness because who you identify with determines your identity. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and may he cause his glorious face to shine on you that there might be the shalom of his vision for your life, that the prince of shalom, the prince of nothing missing, nothing broken, would so shine in you that every place the sole of your foot treads, you would be grounded in the goodness of God in the land of the living. 